to another episode of Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children. I'm your host, Sharita Butler-Barnes, with our special co-host, Nicole Petier-Lewis, our Parent Joy Circle member. So in today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Chris Henney, youth defender, justice advocate, trainer, author, speaker, law professor, and author of The Rage of Innocence. Welcome to the show. And so before we get started, I always like to celebrate anything, all things, Black Girl Glory. And so I am going to talk a little bit about who Chris is. Chris is a nationally recognized advocate, author, trainer, and consultant on the intersection of race, adolescence, and the policing of Black youth. She is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law and was previously the lead attorney of the juvenile unit at the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia. Chris has been representing children accused of crime for more than 26 years and is the co-founder of a number of initiatives to combat racial injustice in the juvenile and criminal legal systems, including the Ambassadors for Racial Justice Program and a Racial Justice Toolkit for Youth Defenders. Chris also trains state actors across the country on the impact of racial bias on youth in the courts and the traumatic effects of over-policing and hyper-surveillance. She has received several awards, including the 2021 Leadership Prize from the Juvenile Law Center and the 2022 Women of Distinction Award from the American Association of University Women. Chris has written many articles and other publications advocating for reform in the juvenile legal system. Her recent book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, was featured on the front page of the New York Times Book Review and received rave reviews in the Washington Post. The book was awarded a 2022 Media for a Just Society Award by Evident Change and the 2022 Social Justice Advocacy Award from In the Margins Book Awards Committee. Welcome, Chris. Wow. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. And so we are so happy to be here with you today and just to get started and to begin to really have a conversation about what's going on with youth in our society. Your remarkable career spans roles as a youth defender, justice advocate, trainer, author, speaker, and law professor. Can you share with the audience how each of these roles has contributed to your deep understanding of the criminalization of Black youth and your commitment to bringing about change? Absolutely. And I I really think that's just such a, a great question. I like to tell people that it is hard to do the work that I do on a day-to-day basis without wanting to blow up the entire criminal justice system. <laughs> so I have been representing kids, children on the front lines in delinquency and criminal cases for the last 26 years. And it is hard to look at the racial disparities that we see, the criminalization of just normal adolescent behaviors, the shortcomings in due process for children, and really not want to fundamentally change the way we do business. And so I think that I will say as a youth defender, Mm -hmm. On the front lines, I get the bird's eye view of what it means to be a child, what it means to be a parent, and to find yourself 
as an accused, right? And what does that feel like for kids and families? And in many ways, how you feel almost, you know, helpless in the system, if you will. So you see that as a frontline defender. As an advocate, I use that word to describe my efforts in the policy realm, which is Mm -hmm. how can I get before legislative bodies? How can I get before policymakers, let's say in the police department, at school systems, funders, and advocate for reform of the systems, reforming the ways in which we treat children who have mental health challenges, who have uh, disabilities, educational disabilities. So that's what my role is as an advocate. And I've learned so much from doing that work, right? The interplay between what it means to get arrested and brought into court Mm -hmm. and how you can make change at the city council level or the state legislative level. As a trainer, so I train defense attorneys, attorneys for children all across the United States. And so I hear from them what they are seeing. And I am always shocked by the similarities. So even a child, I practice in Washington, D.C., and so I'm in an Mm -hmm. urban center with a lot of Black children. But I can go to a rural state with very few Black children, and you will find that racial disparities are still profound. So in a Mm -hmm. state with only 2%, you know, Black children in their population, and you still have that Black children represent like, you know, 6% or more. It's usually way more than that. My, my point simply is to show you that even with that low number, they still radically outweigh. So that's one thing. I think another thing, you know, you asked me as an author, what did I learn about children and the criminalization of Black youth? Well, as an author. So I wrote a book, The Rage of Innocence, you know, as you indicated, how America criminalizes Black children. And in doing the research for that book, I was trying to understand how it is that so many of my clients end up in the system, my Black children end up in the system. That was helpful. I learned about the research on the trauma that comes from being in the system Mm -hmm. and from being in contact with the police. I learned about adolescent development. So I learned so incredibly much. And then, you know, I just think, you know, as a speaker, as a law professor, and as a trainer, not only am I working with other youth attorneys, but I'm also working with judges and probation officers, prosecutors. I actually did a training recently for school nurses. It was fabulous. Mm. It was really, really interesting. You know, teachers, all of the key players in the system, the other mental health providers, right, that, that funnel kids, you know, sometimes intentionally or unintentionally into the, the juvenile and criminal legal system. So that's really what I've learned from all of those different roles. You said two interesting things to me. So everything that you said was right on. But you mentioned something that parents don't necessarily, you know, just probably needs a little bit further explanation. Mm -hmm. When you said that Black kids are penalized for normal developmental things, Mm -hmm. what does normal, like, development being punished for something that we know as adolescents that that is something that is really on a normative spectrum, but how are Black children penalized at these higher rates in comparison to others. 
You know what? I'm going to give you a story. I think the best way to tell it. And so one of the stories that I, I write about in my book and was based on a real, everything in my book is based on real client stories. So I talk about, and I know, Nicole, you are in school, so this just really may resonate with you. But one of the clients that I um, represent was a 17-year-old Black girl, and she got into an argument with her boyfriend. During the course of the argument, she was absolutely convinced that he was cheating on her. And so what does, you know, a 17-year-old girl do? She grabs his cell phone out of his hands and begins to walk away down the hallway. And as she's walking down the hallway, she's scrolling through his text messages to see whether or not he's been communicating with someone else. Well, guess what? School resource officer sees this and decides to intervene. How do you think he intervened? He arrested her. In the hallway, between classes, in front of her friends, in front of other teachers. And so it doesn't stop there. So not only does this child get arrested, right? She then gets transported to detention, a secure detention facility, held overnight, brought to court the next day, and then formally prosecuted for robbery taking the property of another by force or stealth. This is what I'm talking about. And so here I have on paper this 17-year-old child who looks like a serious violent felon, a robber, right? When in reality, she's a teenager do what I dare say many of your listeners have done, you know, just being, you know. Yes, just being Exactly. Just being a kid. Emotional 17-year-old girl. Right. Yes. What do we know about kids? Impulsive, reactive, emotional, Mm -hmm. you know, fairness fanatics, right? You know what? And then the police, who are they protecting, right? So number one, you know, look, in the hallway between classes, nobody's paying attention to this Mm -hmm. until the police officer arrests her right? Nobody's paying attention. So you're not protecting the other kids. I guarantee you, um, her boyfriend did not need her, need the school resource officer's assistance to get his phone back. At all. He was going to get that phone back. So it's just nonsense. So that's what, that's just one of many, Sharita, examples Mm -hmm. that I cover in the book and that you see. So everything from something that sounds that extreme, like a robbery on paper, is so not. And then Everything from talking back, and I know, you know, as a teacher and a principal, you know, Nicole, nobody wants, you know, your kids to talk back, but is it a criminal offense? It is part and parcel what kids do, right? Testing limits, taking risks, being emotional. So talking back to adults, it's about experimenting with sex, drugs, alcohol, you know, of course, not what we're excited about for our kids, but guess what? How many of us did that as kids and we came out just fine? I mean, it's just experiment. It's just adolescence. This is what they do. That's just what's so, oh. And the the, the scariest part about that is I'm just imagining um, when she was in the hallway and say she started to cry or she was emotional and um, saying, why are you doing this to me? That that would have escalated it beyond. And other people are allowed to have those types of tears, right? And when a young black woman does, she's out of sorts. She's uh, unruly. She's a threat. That's right. And we see that, you know, as a part of like, you know, implicit bias for a lot of people That's too, right. right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, she's emotional. She's angry. She's a threat. And then it's how do we then deal with the trauma that that young lady has 
Absolutely. Exactly. It's embarrassing. It's stigmatizing, you know, and she gets labeled, Mm -hmm. you know, as a problem child, you know, maybe among other teachers who haven't yet had her, maybe, you know, in her next academic, oh, I saw her get arrested. You know what I mean? And even if they don't mean to intentionally, it becomes subconscious, right? Then you get teased and laughed at, you know, the kids just being kids. So it's, it is very traumatic. I mean, there's, you know, you know, we could talk about that. There's empirical research demonstrating the extraordinary psychological trauma that children, especially Black and Latino children, experience in contact mm-hmm. with the police, um, whether that's police. And in fact, actually, the research shows that that when the police contact occurs in school, it's even more traumatizing because of the embarrassment. So it's all those. Absolutely. And that was my second question. Actually, do you be working with the school resource officers? Because that is... Absolutely. Even the presence of school resource officers, the research shows, exacerbates suspensions, arrests, just the mere presence. So we work around both of those issues. We work around the policy question because half of it is just getting police out of schools. And I, you know, we tell people all the time, it's not as controversial as y'all like to think, right? What it is, is that we as a society have bought into the notion that the only way to keep children and teachers safe is through traditional law enforcement methods. And the research shows Mm. that alternatives, right, even alternatives like smaller class sizes, how about that, right? Right. Social emotional learning, conflict resolution, right? Mental Mm -hmm. health services in the school system. Those are the kinds of services that actually reduce crime in schools and keep kids safe. And we've seen that all across the country. This is not new. You know, Uvalde, you know, even all the way back to Columbine, Colorado and Sandy Hook and Mm -hmm. Parkland, they were police in schools, but they did not prevent those types of mass shootings that people are worried about. Instead, these, um, the presence of school resource officers actually increases the likelihood that a child, and in particular, a black or brown child is going to be referred to the system just like my client Sharice did. I just spent two days in active shooter training as a principal. And, you know, what you're saying is absolutely true. What happens is if we're not looking at how to find the panacea, right? Mm-hmm. If that young lady had a media, a person that was at the school ready to do a mediation with her boyfriend at the time. And so hand them over the phone and she said, she can say my feelings for her, you know, and this is what, and why would you do that? And that's all that probably needed to happen to deescalate the situation. Well, when you add, but police officers are not, that is not their first intent, right? That's not what they're trained to do. They're trained to subdue the issue, to take care of the threat. So it's not, you know, and that's where the issue is. We need to create that scaffold and that bridge. So that's, you know, so that children will have the opportunity to be able to be, have normalized children behavior and be able to be taught how to manage through it. And that's the, it is huge. It is huge. huge. And it's so good to hear you say that as a, as a principal. Um, And I think sometimes um, you as principal are a better messenger even, even than me, you know, as a a defense attorney, as an advocate around the issues, because they're like, well, you're not in the schools. You don't know what we're dealing with. So you know what? I, I don't know, you know, what it's like to be a principal or teacher, but I do know what I see coming to court and what is being revered to the courthouse. I also know what the research shows. So it's just maybe a teaming up of, you know, folks inside the school and outside the school saying this is not the way to go. So. 
Mm-hmm. It has to become a community, high heightened community support around our, our young people in every, every way. And with your expertise in race, adolescence, and policing, um, you shed light on so much in terms of the criminalization of Black youth. Could you delve into your experience as a former lead attorney for the juvenile unit of the D.C. Public Defender Service and how these experiences have shaped your perspective on the issue? Because we know that we see that it is absolutely on target and we need to hear more Mm -hmm. about it. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know what? I'm going to build from what I said earlier, this notion of I've been um, representing children on the front line for 26 years, really, at this point. And here's what's crazy. In that entire 26 years, I have only represented four white children. That's it. Every other child I have represented has been an African-American child. And that's right here in the nation's capital. And so for anybody who's listening and doesn't think that there are white children here, you would be sorely mistaken, right? For anybody who's listening and thinks that white children don't commit crime, again, you would be sorely mistaken. It is all about how we respond. And so I think in my 26 years, that's what I have seen the most, right? Uh, To be quite frank, the criminalization and dehumanization and hyper-surveillance of Black children, Black and Brown children. And I know y'all have touched on implicit right, racial bias and, and all the ways in which mm-hmm. um, that happens. And, and, and to be clear, when we sit in space with probation officers, prosecutors, judges, everybody will admit it. People are kind of shocked when you stop and think about it. Wait, we only see Black kids here. Um, And the research on adolescent development shows that children of all races and all classes all over the world, not just in the United States, but all over the world, engage in those impulsive and um, adolescent behaviors that we just talked about. So why is it that we only see, you know, in, in a city like D.C., only see black children? Okay, and of course, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, you know an anomaly, but in other states, as I noted earlier, you're going to see a, a radically disproportionate number of black and brown kids, even if it's not 100 percent. And so, you know, I um, another thing that I've learned from being a public defender on the front lines and particularly in this moment where there's a little bit of uptick in crime and a lot of the major urban centers, we are seeing that return of the super predator narrative, this just pervasive Mm. fear of Black children. And we are seeing it in the media. We're seeing it in, in the responses that prosecutors have and judges have, that police officers have. Um, So we're seeing it in all of those things. Um, When in the reality is the data shows very few children of any race and class are engaged in those offenses that we are most afraid of as a community. Robberies, burglaries, carjackings, Mm. homicides. That's what makes the news, right? We're legitimately afraid of those. But guess what, y'all? That's a very tiny percent of the children who end up in juvenile 
court and in, you know, and to be quite frank, and in criminal court. And people just don't realize that, right? And instead, we've got kids like, you know, my client Sharice that I talked about who was charged with the robbery. Um, we've got kids who are in there for petty um, behaviors, or even if they're not petty, they're in there for behaviors that still arise out of normal adolescence and that could be dealt with differently short of the criminal legal system. And guess what? As we've been already saying, we don't do that to white kids. And so you're speaking right to me because I'm a developmental psychologist by training. So that's like my soul is just excited. Oh, yes. There you go. And so if we have this information about what we know, what normative development looks like in the way that Black children are sort of criminalized, does the science matter? Great question. So the answer, okay, so there's good news and bad news, okay? So I'm going to get a little legal on you in plain language because this is how profound the developmental science is. The developmental science has radically shifted how we do law. Okay, so the Supreme Mm. Court, the highest court of our land, has finally said that adolescent development matters. And I'll be a little bit in the weeds and just tell you that many of the defense uh, attorneys from across the country about, I would say, 15 to 20 years ago, more like 15, really began to partner with developmental scientists. That's how we got the, our developmental psychologists. And we would literally, I was at the table, we would be meeting and helping each other understand the underlying issues. We began to push that all across the United States, that adolescent development matters. Adolescent development matters in search and seizure when the police can stop you. Adolescent development matters in questions like um, state of mind and whether or not a kid is acting on impulse or acting with a guilty conscience. Adolescent Mm -hmm. development matters with sentencing. And we began to push that at the state level and eventually had a number of test cases that went to the Supreme Court. As we sit here today, there are now at least five Supreme Court cases that have fundamentally explicitly agreed that adolescent development matters in the criminal law. All right. That is the good news. So so that means, so you may know, you may have heard, you know, in the news at some point, this is all in the last like, you know, 15 years. And there's a very intentional effort by advocates, but that you can no longer sentence a child to death. Right. Um, You know, death penalty is not allowed. Finally. And by the way, everybody who's listening, the United States was like the second to the last country in the world to say that it was illegal to execute children. And you know who was being executed? Predominantly black and brown children. So we finally don't have execution of children because of that law. We also don't have um, any more. We don't have mandatory life without the possibility of parole for black. I mean, for children, Mm. period. Again, even more disproportionately, that was black and brown children. We still do have some life without the possibility of parole in certain pockets of our country, but it's not mandatory. So we still that's one of the bad news. We still got work to do in that area. But here's the real bad news. So there's a lot of good news on the adolescent development front. Finally, judges get that. We still have work because not all states, everybody gets it. But here's where we need work. Guess what, you all? And I think this is what you're getting at, Sharita. It's that notwithstanding how much work that the adolescent development has done to reduce the number of children who are you know, being treated severely in court, we still have racial disparity. And so that even as the numbers, the raw numbers of kids in court has gone down, 
over the last 40 years has gone just down, down, down. Notwithstanding what it sounds like on the news, the racial disparities have gotten broader and broader over time. So Ooh. that is what's painful. And so what we know, I mean, what the empirical research is showing is that implicit racial bias undermines the mitigating effects of adolescent development. In other mm. words, our implicit biases prevent us from seeing Black children as children. It's that simple. Adultification of children. Yeah, adultification, exactly. And there is, adultification. yes. I know that's exactly where I went. Adultification, this mm-hmm. whole idea of you know, even in developmental science, I struggle because I'm like black girlhood, black boyhood is not talked about. They're adultified. We've skipped that. And and let me tell you, for any of your listeners who's not up, I'm telling you, and and there's powerful research. For anybody who wants to go look it up, Dr. Philip Atiba Goff, studies showing that people tend to view black boys, I'll start with boys, I'll do girls second, black boys as more than four and a half years older than they actually are. And so y'all think about Tamir Rice, right? He was 12 year old mm-hmm. boy shot mm-hmm. in Cleveland in less than three minutes, three seconds, excuse me, in less than three seconds after police arrived on the scene, right? And the police officers, when they talked about, got interviewed about why they shot him, of course, they said, oh, we got a radio run, you know, for a, a, a black male with the gun. Well, guess what, you all? That radio run also said it's probably fake, meaning the gun is probably fake and it's probably a child. But the mm. research shows that it wouldn't have even mattered if they had really internalized that additional information because when they drove up, they began to talk about how big, you know, uh, Tamir Rice looked like and how he didn't look to be, you know, 12 years old. They commented, oh, he was wearing an extra large jacket in the side. 30 like I'm sorry three less than three seconds how about you slow down he, like look right. at him you know all, all of that three, three sec- seconds right? less than three seconds yes yeah. but also it's if Tamir Rice looked differently what would have been the de-escalation techniques that would have been used at that time exactly exactly so what happens in those cases where um they have to de-escalate for a child who is not That's a right. black or brown boy That's right. sometimes we've heard really um instances where they've actually taken them out to eat afterwards the ame church shooting exactly exactly dylan, dylan, dylan roof and here's yes. another one how about kyle rittenhouse how about kyle rittenhouse in kenosha right was walking around with an assault rifle in public yes. view for an extended period of time and then ends up, right, killing two people and wounding another. And so people like to say, oh, oh, but that was an open carry state, meaning he had a right. I'm sorry. I, let me be clear to anybody who's listening. Even in an open carry state, and by open carry state, I mean where it's lawful to have a, a weapon. First of all, he looked like a child. So why nobody, you know, stopped to see whether or not he was too young to have a weapon. But second, had a black child been walking around, even in an open carry state, they are still likely to get stopped. You know, so it's just the racial bias is is huge. It's just it's huge. And then black girls have it no better. Right. The research shows that black girls are perceived to be adults, perceived black girls to be older, more mature, more knowledgeable about adult topics, less innocent, less in need of protection. They're more promiscuous. promiscuous. That's right. I'm thinking about the report. The Georgetown, Georgetown report, report, right? The Georgetown Center on Poverty uh-huh. and Inequality. Yes, girlhood interrupted. You, we can. Yes, all mm-hmm. the research is out there. This is not. We're not just making it up. We're not just you know calling wolf. 
it's been empirically documented. It's, it's science behind it. It's, it's the fact, you know, it's science behind it. Oh, the data speaks Okay, loud. so the good and bad news. The data speaks That's right. loud. That's right. Mm-hmm. Data literacy is so yes. important. Um, and so your book, The Rage of Innocence, focuses on a critical aspect of advocacy. And we've been talking, you know, um, having a great discussion so far. And so could you tell us about the journey of like writing this book, what it took, like the insights you gained and how you hope it would mm. catalyze change in Black and Latinx children's treatment within the justice system. Yes. Um, that book um, was just literally like a calling, right? Like I just, to, to be quite frank, uh, maybe a, a couple of years before, maybe even less than that, like a year before I actually decided I was going to write this book, I got invited to write a chapter in a book called Policing the Black Man. And um, the editors, Mm -hmm. Angela Davis, and, you know, we were chatting and I was like, wow, you know, you got an entire book with different chapters, different folks like Brian Stevenson's got a chapter in there. um, Just wonderful chapters in that book. And um, I was like, how can you have a book about policing the black man without a chapter on policing the black boy? Because it all starts there. And so mm-hmm. that's how, you know, that's how it all went down. And we, you know, so then she, we, we added a chapter to that book and I ended up being asked to write the chapter on policing black boys and writing that chapter, which is a short, wow. like little essay, you know, less than, you know, 20, you know, 20, 25 pages. And I knew there's an entire story to be told. And mm. over the course of my career, like I said, it's been, you know, 26 years, I have been collecting what I call shock and all stories. Those are the stories of clients that I've represented, children that I have represented, where we all as a community should be appalled that this child is in the system. And so that's what this book is. It became, you know, sort of a, a compilation of those stories and understanding why those stories were happening. And so you know, I tell the story about Sharice. I tell the story about, you know, just the pervasive fear of Black children, right? I mm-hmm. tell stories also um, about high profile stories that we all know about, but I try to unpack in a different way and tie to research. So like Emmett Till, all the way back from Emmett Till, Tamir Rice, Khalif Browder, who, you know, committed suicide mm-hmm. in, you know, after getting out of Rikers for something he never did. Of course, the Exonerated mm-hmm. Five. And this is all interwoven with stories that, of clients that I, you know, represent. And I also, I tell people all the time, and I include Mike Brown. So somebody said to me, oh, why do you have Mike Brown in here? He was, you know, he was an adult. No, Mike Brown was 18 years old. Okay. And I don't know anybody who thinks that an 18 year old, you know, <laughs> is anything but a child still, you know, maturing and, and, and the like. Right. So, so my point here is that book forced me to do the research that explains it all and ties it all together. And then gives me an opportunity to tell that, share that in plain language. So the book is not a law mm. book. It's not a, um, an academic, you know, treaties. It is a trade press book meant for a lay audience. It's meant for all of us who are not lawyers. So it's for everybody, teachers, counselors, you know, your neighbor. It's for everybody who cares about children and who cares about Black children in our society. So I learned so much from writing that book. I'll be honest with you. You said something earlier, Sharita, about how we don't get to talk about Black childhood and, right, because we skip over that. And, you know, here's the deal. I did not understand in my lifetime, I have understood development um, to be 
childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Well, guess what? Adolescence Mm -hmm. is a relatively new concept. And it wasn't until really the 50s and the 60s that we even began Mm -hmm. to use the word adolescence, right? And the reason why that is so important is because when adolescence first materialized in society after the Industrial Revolution, it was because white, wealthy children, I mean, parents, wanted to set their kids up for success in this new industrial world. So they brought them in from the field. They um, put them in extended opportunities for education. They gave them extended periods of recreation. Guess what? None of that was for black children at the beginning. So none none of it. it. And so even from the very inception of this idea Mm -hmm. of adolescence, it wasn't meant for black and brown children. Um, And even when we, we eventually evolved into mandatory schooling and all the kids were brought in from the field and we we got labor laws, um, we had to find other ways to deprive black and brown children of adolescence. And one of those very critical ways is through this criminalization of normal adolescent behaviors. So yeah. So, so I learned a lot. There's so much Ooh. more in the book. And um, so I, you know, I hope folks will, you know, think about reading it. But that's it was a powerful journey. I will say one other thing, because you asked, you know, how well, I guess two other things. One, you asked yeah. um, about the journey of writing. I have, like I said, I've been doing the work for a very long time and I feel it. Right. I feel it as an mm. advocate, but I really feel it as a black woman. Um, and what I found in writing the book was I was reliving my clients' stories by looking back at them. Wow. Um, and I was just like suffering from like post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'm like, this, mm-hmm. how far removed? And it just made me really understand, like if I'm living it, you know, by rehashing these stories, how much Black kids and their parents and their family members have to deal with that. And then I got to chapter 11, y'all. And chapter 11 is entitled The Black Family in the Era of Mass Incarceration. And that's when I began to talk about my own family. And it is so hard to talk about. It was the hardest chapter to write. So I had a brother who not only ended up spending much of his time in the criminal system, but also died in prison. Right. And Mm -hmm. like going back and revisiting that, I realized that it is hard. It is really almost impossible to be a black woman in America and not have some direct and personal contact with the criminal legal system. With the criminal justice system. Seriously. It's impossible. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm so um, curious about the title, The Rage of Innocence. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so so look the rage of innocence at a very sort of you know you know 900 foot level <laughs> macro level is the rage that every single one of us should have anytime any one black child is an op- is deprived of the opportunity to be a child right just that rage of mm-hmm. innocence but at a, mi- at a much more micro level it is also about the rage right that any black child um, should have when they are criminalized, excluded, feared, labeled, isolated, 
ostracized, right? And so, you know, I say to, to people all the time, look, there is no child of any racial class who's going to walk up to a police officer and be like, Mr. Officer, I don't like the way you've been treating me. <laughs> I don't like the way you've been treating, you know, you know, my people, <laughs> right? Instead, right. they protest. And what does the protest sound like? It sounds like profanity. It sounds like talking back. It sounds like anger. It That's sounds right. like frustration. And guess what I say to people? That's what any human being should do and should feel like when, you know, they are deprived of their dignity, when they are dehumanized. That's how we reassert ourself and our, you know, esteem. And so that's just, and it's normal adolescence. That's what you expect, right? The child doesn't know how to like give that, you know, academic dissertation. (laughs) Instead, they speak like a child and they speak like a child who has been hurt. And so that's the rage I'm talking about too, that rage of Mm. what does it mean to be just innocent, but yet treated as a criminal at all times. And I guess also, you know, as you're looking at, as a a community at large, you know, what do we even learn from children when they are, when they do have that rage, right? Do we then begin to um, stand up and as you work with juvenile defenders and justice stakeholders on the implicit bias that's making our children angry and they're seeing this, Right. right? What's the role that they need to have in this conversation as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. No, what a great question. And it's certainly, it's a great question from you as teacher and principal. Look, <laughs> this is what, you know, I, I say all the time, and I, I, I talk about this in the book, like, if you want to make the world a better place for Black children, ask them. That's right. Right? Ask them. So getting at the table. So people, like, I'll do events for, like, schools, and I'll do events for, like, um, students themselves. You know, I talk to them about, like, look, it's about you know, forming your clubs and even having teachers and administrators who will partner with them to create a safe space for children to talk about these experiences, right? So Mm -hmm. like talking about school resource officers, I even say even when school resource officers are in schools and they mean well, you know, even in that context, asking the kids, how does it make you feel to show up in school and see a blue uniform? Well, guess what? That blue uniform in school or even some semblance of it, even just the badge, right? Looks a whole lot like the blue uniform of the officer who attacked my sibling or the officer who locked up my mama or the, the guess what? Or the, the blue uniform of the, um, of the officers who killed George Floyd, right? And so people need to understand how that works. And so giving kids a space to talk about what does that look like and to talk about what does public safety look like in their school and how they would want to achieve it, what the alternatives are, so that's, I think, really critical, giving young people an opportunity to, you know, look, draft policy and reform or proposals that they pitch to the school and to the community writ large. We in Washington, D.C. have done, I talked about my role as advocate and partnering with other policy organizations a while back. This is before the pandemic, but there were some critical issues before city council and like going to the to the local schools, finding middle school students and high school students. And particularly we would go to individual teachers and we would say, are you interested in this topic? Do you think your students would be interested in this topic? How about we've got a huge city council hearing? Why don't you take your students on a field trip and show up? Man, we had one city council here. I'd lie to you not. It was some years ago. It was one of the people in the city still talk about it more than three hundred children showed up at a yes at a city council and and like you know they had designated people who were going to speak and they the hearing was so well attended they had to it was meant to be like a two-hour hearing ended up being two days 
and the kids came back the next day. Wow. That's the power of their voice. But there are a couple of student organizations citywide, right, mm-hmm. where kids, they convene what they call a seat at the table. Right. And so they they're like, hey, look, 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 we're not going to city council. We're going to create our seat at the table. And then they send out notice to all the city leaders and they'll say, show up, chief of police, show up, you know, um, head of the school system. And and literally all the kids are sitting at the table and they got two seats at the front and they would make the city leaders rotate one at a time, one at a time one at a time. And it was phenomenal. I was just in the audience. Like we heard about it. They told us and they're like, come out and and see pathways to power. That's what it is. Pathways to power. It was phenomenal. One of the best events I have ever attended in my life, just sitting in the audience, watching it happen. It was amazing. So creating opportunities like that. And and the city leaders showed up because they knew it's going to hit the news if like look like these kids, you know, pulled together this event. Well, it it wouldn't look bad if they didn't show up though, right? Wow. Very powerful. And so it has me like thinking about a lot of like my own research, things that you talked about, and then this importance of centering youth. And so for those who are listening to us, share how listeners can learn more about your work. It's the Rage of Innocence. We're promoting y'all. Please go out and get it. But how can they learn about all of these wonderful areas that you're So I would say two things. One, so I am at the Georgetown Law School. I'm the director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law School. So you can Google me. You can literally Google me, Kristen Henning, um, but more importantly, Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic. And when you're on our website, there's a tab on the right that says racial justice. When you open that tab, it has all of um, our racial justice work. And let me be clear, you all. There are webinars after webinars after webinars. We did two years worth of monthly webinars on every single topic that we talked about. We brought in the speakers even before that two-year series started. And this just ended. Even before that series, we had a phenomenal webinar with Dr. Philip Atiba-Goff, who who did the study on adultification. That was one of our older ones, right? And so that's, that's on there. Um, We have uh, a couple of school-related webinars that talk about uh, racial justice and school resource officers and the criminalization of Black youth, but literally webinar after webinar. And each of the webinars has resources and handout and the like. So they're all publicly available. Yeah, and we'll be sure to put this information up as well so that people can have those resources to share. Yeah, so those have been phenomenal. And we really started it as a fluke. It was it was tied to, um, we were trying to think creatively about ways to, to get people, uh, even if you don't have time to read the whole book, what do we want to get out? And so we started just a 12 month, you know, series, one chapter at a time on the book. And, you know, it shouldn't have been a surprise, but to our surprise, I mean, like the experts joined us. Um, so the people that I, the researchers that I was citing to, we would reach out to them and say, hey, don't you want to come on? We had practitioners, we've had, you know, school leaders, we've had like people wanted to participate in the webinar. And so it's there for you. And what's great about that is that it really is going to take all of us. That's right. Period. All of us to really do it. And without the research and without the opportunity to hear the podcast and hear from the experts, then a, a typical mom not put the words to what she sees her child, her children going through when they're not heard at school or they're being um, overly criminalized. They don't have the words. So it's so important that we give the 
the knowledge to our families as well, our moms, our, our fellow mothers, so that they will be able to then mm-hmm. advocate as well. And that's exactly right. You asked, you know, you, Sarita, you asked earlier, like, what do I hope this book will accomplish? And, you know, one thing is I want it to change hearts and minds, right? Right. Another thing is I want every single person, right, to see themselves in this book. And that means of all races, you should be able to look at these stories and say, "Ooh, I did that was when I was a teenager and that didn't happen. You know, I didn't end up. That's right. We should all be angry. We should all. That's right. That's right. And then the third thing was exactly what you said, Nicole, was to give tools to folks who do get it, who folks who live it, moms who live it, you know, children who live it, to give them a voice and the tools and the resources um, that they need to advocate. And so the last chapter, you know, so, so not only does the whole book talk about all of these issues, but chapter 12 at the end begins to talk about reform and strategies and the way to work through it. I will also say book um, chapter five um, really is about Black adolescent identity development. And what does it mean, right? Love it. You're speaking to me. You're speaking to me. Yeah, yes. Right. But- um, what I love about, and actually I call the chapter Adolescence in Black and White, right? And it's all about that identity formation and about socialization and about what Black parents have to do to socialize their children, right? To navigate a world in which they will have inevitable moments of discrimination, right? Mm-hmm. How do you mm-hmm. prepare them without over preparing them such that they're afraid and that they, you know, believe that all people who don't look like them are the enemy, right? That neither of those are what we want, but you also have to like prepare them so that they're not shocked. You know what I mean? So it's just wild. Absolutely. It's just wild. So, you know, y'all remember the story of um, Jeremiah Harvey, you know, out of, um, I think it was the, the, in the Brooklyn bodega. Um, he was the nine-year-old boy. He was in the bodega with his mother and his um, his sister. You remember this? And then the white woman yes, is standing right. at the, the counter in the in the bodega. He walks in. His book bag accidentally brushes against her, but and she, she thinks, thinks he- right? And so here's this nine-year-old child having one of those inevitable moments of discrimination, right? And he's crying and he's on all these interviews and he's just dead devastated. That's what we're talking about. That's why Black mothers at the age, you know, with a nine-year-old boy have to educate that child on Emmett Till at the age of nine. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Oh my God. And it's it's so sad because we have stories after stories after stories. That's right. About this. That's right. And you don't even have to be the stories that we hear in the news. It's what you might have experienced as a mother yourself, with your own children, your own own nieces and nephews, you know, you're just seeing your own students, like you said, you know, just going through that as an educator and then trying to find the ways to equip them for something that is so unjust. Yes. And trying to figure out, you know, we know you're a child, but when you speak, you have to speak That's like right. this. And you would never think that in 2023 you would have to say a child that they can have authentic emotion. That is right. Code switching. Right. We have to teach our kids code switching. Mm-hmm. In 2023, and that goes straight to the to the rage of innocence. Like we, you know, have to try to get our kids to not demonstrate that rage, you know, justifiable rage. But guess what, y'all? They're kids. I don't care how many times you tell your kids not to to react. And what does a kid do? They act out of their emotions. You're you're actually asking them to do right. something that biologically they might not even be able to do. And what's crazy is that even holding that on has implications That's on right. outcomes later on. If we talk about the lifestyle. That's right. So it's just all across this trajectory. Oh, my gosh. So you have given us so many things to think about. 
y'all please go out and get this book <laughs> so that we could be prepared we are going to share this information please send it to us i just want to thank you for being here today you were amazing i'm always about celebrating black girl glory again rage of innocence you all thank you so much for joining thank us. you so much for having me oh my goodness sharita nicole i'm like over the moon great conversation just yes we feel each other on this issue yeah yes phenomenal your work is phenomenal we're blessed to be able to have this conversation with you this this evening absolutely okay so thank you all for tuning in we appreciate your continued support we're grateful to be part of the alive podcast network the home of black voices where community, culture, and creatives live. If you'd like to support our show and enjoy an ad-free experience, please download and subscribe to the Alive Podcast app available on the Apple Store or Google Play. For helpful parenting resources and tools, visit whatisblack.co, that is whatisblack.co, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Don't forget to follow us on social media by checking out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts at whatisblack. Thank you.